Hello, today is April 6th, 2017, and you are listening to A Pint of Law. I'm your host, Matthew Curtis, from the University of Notre Dame, bringing you today's most important legal issues in a way that you could explain to your bartender. My guest today is Andres Felipe Lopez. Andres is from Bogota, Colombia. He is a JSD candidate in international human rights law at the University of Notre Dame. He received his LLB from the Universidad del Rosario in 2009 and his LLM in international legal studies and comparative law from the Georgetown University Law Center in 2013. He has worked at the International Legal Affairs Office of the Colombian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where he collaborated in the treaty negotiation and ratification process. Andres is interested in international law, human rights theory, development issues, and Catholic social teaching. His doctrinal studies focus on the relationship between business, human rights, and development. His dissertation concerns how corporations and other private actors can promote development in countries with high rates of poverty, focusing on questions concerning the recognition of new duty bearers under international human rights law, the relationship between human rights and development, and the limits of the law to promote social change. Okay, Andres, what was the nature of the Colombian conflict? So the Colombian conflict is a 51 years conflict between um, the legitimate government and several armed groups, including two major left-wing guerrillas and the right-wing paramilitaries. The, this last one, the paramilitaries, were demobilized partially in 2010, and, um, and the guerrillas, uh, they were still fighting, most of them, except FARC. FARC is the major and most powerful guerrilla. Um, it was founded in the 60s, um, based on Marxist ideology, and um, he has been fighting for 51 years against the government. And um, now the origins of the conflicts are not very clear, but it's kind of a mix between uh, like objective causes, the poverty and problems with land di- distribution, and subjective causes of uh, ideology and people involved um, in uh, intellectual circles and mov- movements of peasants promoting kind of violence to face um, this kind of injustices. Okay, and is this centered mostly in one area, or like really how much of Colombia has been affected by the Civil War directly? Great, that's a great question. So I, I, it's more, it's mainly uh, war in the rural area of Colombia. So cities usually have been kind of um, protected uh, and kind of in a bubble from the from these 51 years, but it's, there are exceptions. Some years we had very several uh, problems within the cities because of the war, like uh, bombing in uh, one of the major clubs in the middle of Bogota, the capital, and things like that. So it's ma- mainly in the rural area. Um, so what's it like today? I know that we've had a lot going on last year, but what's the legal situation on the ground? So today we are in a peace process with the FARC, and um, which is going to be is the major actor. Uh, so it's going is the most relevant peace process, um, and we are facing the we we voted f- uh, for um, a referendum to approve the government's like uh, negotiation with the FARC. Um, the government agreed with the FARC to stop fighting in exchange for some benefits uh, to the FARC. One of those uh, is political participation for the FARC to become a political party and um, an amnesty law for the most of the crimes except for the major like serious human rights violations. 
All right, so your paper is about the legal framework for businesses in a post-conflict area. Um, you start, though, by organizing the tiers of participation in the conflict. That You say that there are some businesses that sustain the conflict, some businesses that adapt to the conflict, and some businesses that help to reduce the conflict. Let's start with the first. Um, what are the characteristics of some businesses that sustain the conflict? So businesses that sustain the conflict are those that are benefiting some in some way from the war itself. Uh, so for example, they are hiring illegal armed forces to be their security guards, or they take advantage of internal displacement produced by guerrilla members so they can acquire like very cheap land, or uh, they're partnered with illegal groups to threaten um, union members that oppose to the corporation's activities. Okay, the second tier then. How do you describe those that adapted to the conflict? So this is the majority of businesses in kind of an armed conflict. They just um, limited their, their activities to cities where there, there was no much impact of the war. And um, they internalized the cost of the war with through insurance or security fees or things like that, or more security in general. Okay, and that intuitively made sense to me that most of the business would fall into that middle group. Um, but you say that some businesses, mostly at the end, um, started to reduce the conflict and become peace builders. What are some of their characteristics? So these businesses are, um, yes, they're a minority and they're kind of courageous businesses that what they are trying to do is to help the reconstruction um, of uh, harm zones or areas. Uh, for example, hiring former combatants or promoting uh, reconciliation and um, dialogue within communities. So it's kind of social corporate responsibility, but um, is, is based kind of in human rights also. Okay, great. So that sounds like a great opportunity at the end of the conflict um, to, to grow that sort of space on the ground. All right, so then let's get to the central issue of your paper. On November 30th, 2016, Colombia's Congress approved a peace deal with FARC. You argue that the normative principles of human rights, development, and peace can form a virtuous circle that lead to the flourishing of a democratic society after a transition process. First off, let's define our terms. Uh, what do you mean by development, and, and what do you mean, what's this virtuous circle? So what I'm trying to argue here is that these there are three interdependent concepts, human rights, development, and peace, that um, they form a circle in the sense that they uh, enhance or strengthen each other. And at the same time, if one of them fail, like in a chain, uh, they, the others are going to fail. So if you don't have human rights, you cannot have development. If you don't have development, you cannot have peace, but peace is the base for human rights. So it's like a circle, right? Um, so the contrary would be like, a, vice of uh, kind of a wrong circle that is just producing like bad outcomes right so human rights and development are uh, which are kind of the, the 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 first one in the circle they're connected because um development has changed through the years the concept of development changing from a concept based on gen just economic terms in the 50s G gdp growth and that's development. And that's sort of like what the IMF would have been pushing? For example. Um, and that's been changing, especially with the influence of the Nobel Prize winner Amartya Sen. This idea of development is more than just economic things. It's more than just having money or producing more. It's about, it's about the conditions necessary for people to uh, develop and to f choose 
freely different ways of living, right? So if you have the resources necessary for doing that and you have the capacities to transform those resources into real choices, that's development. So it's a more complex uh, definition that just GDP growth. So one thing that, uh, is that human rights and development became together like uh, interdependent uh, clearly when you understand that at the center of the process of development is the human person and that's why you are trying to uh, produce more or uh, uh, protect corporations and things like that. So the consequence is that the only way you can really have development is that you channel economic growth in a way that protects uh, people and protect um, their interest. And you do development in, like through a participatory way with a non-discriminatory basis and in a transparent and accountable way, right? So in that way, you, you have a real human development process and not just economic growth. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so moving on to human rights and peace, you cite four forms of interactions. One, that war and armed conflicts cause human rights violation. Two, that human rights violations produce social unrest and conflict and works as a justification for continued armed conflict. Uh, that three, that strict human rights standards pose challenges to reach peace agreements but impunity for human rights opens the possibility of new conflicts, and that four, that human rights is the language of peace. Okay, so the f first two and four seem intuitive to me, uh, but balancing the leniency uh, necessary to get FARC to the table and yet not underpinning human rights law seems uh, well-nigh impossible. Uh, so how is Colombia dealing with this, and, and how, can, um, how can peace processes in general think about doing this? Well, you're exactly right. That's the hardest and the most difficult um, way in which you have to balance human rights and, and peace, right? Um, it, it's, I mean, I don't have the answer for that. I hope I could answer and, and resolve the problem we're facing right now in yeah, Colombia, no <laughs> right? But um, the, the issue is that um, we all want human rights to be um, like fulfill and, and protect it but uh, and of course we want people that have violated human rights we want it to be punished and maybe throw to jail but at the same time no one is going to negotiate a peace process uh, departing from the idea they are they are going to jail right and they're going to face for 40 50 years all their life in jail that's they're not going to go willingly to that yeah there just seems to be no incentive so there is no incentives so that's the issue with the peace process you have to um, give in order to receive so you have to give kind of justice in order to receive peace and that's how you have to negotiate now that the negotiation is just not there is a limit to that negotiation you cannot give up the punishment for the most serious human rights violations right which are international crimes crimes against humanity war crimes or genocide those you cannot forgive them you, you have to punish them in some ways right in colombia that's been tricky but an interesting solution and is that there is a transitional mechanism um, in which uh, the former combatants are going to pay some kind or serve some kind of alternative sanction that is not jail but um, they are going to have to work for their community uh, in a restricted um, area like is the um, it's called Bereda which is the smallest uh, 
like territorial division in Colombia. There's no more than 1,000 inhabitants. So people cannot move from the, that area and they have to work there. So that's different from jail, of course, but it's some way of sanction. And, um, but, and they're receiving amnesty for any other crime that are not the most serious one, you know? So um, there's still questions about if narco traffic or drug, uh, you know, is going to be part of the amnesty or not. But, um, but in theory, only the most serious crimes are going to be punished. Okay, and I know this is in your paper, but is there an example of a post-conflict situation where a judicial system has been set up and has worked really well? I don't think so. Okay. I, usually, there is a, mo a lot of uh, emphasis on truth okay. and very few in justice. Colombia is one of the, these models that we have both, truth and justice. We have a commission there's going to be that's dedicated to reconstruct the truth of the conflict and a tribunal that is going to judge and try to make justice, I think. Okay, so this is really something that the international community is going to need to watch then. One of the really interesting things that I saw in your paper is that you cite Pope Paul for the proposition that development is the new name for peace. Um, what does that mean and, and how did the Pope end up saying that? Well, that's a great question too. Um, so first, what does it mean? Um, it means that um, th that peace is just more than the absence of warfare, and is what he thinks about peace is this effort uh, of making more just the relationships between people within a community. That's really peace, especially justice for the most poor and most vulnerable vulnerable of a society and um and so there is this interconnection between the justice for the poor and the most vulnerable and uh, social unrest if you have kind of guarantee that the poor people the marginalized they all have voices they have the minimal requirements you are also granting that there is not going to be reasons to social unrest and um, I think this is just absolute logic, I would say, from my perspective, but it was revolutionary in the time when he said it, Paul, Paul VI in the 67s, because uh, development was understood in a different way, you know, and, and, and peace very different. But this is one example of, of, um, of the church, the Catholic church's interest on the social issues and uh, Paul, Paul VI was I think a prophet in his times not well received sometimes uh, in his inner circles okay great we're gonna bring these concepts together around the central theme of business uh, you state that the idea of development as peace is only a laudable goal when human rights are respected uh, broadly why is this important to think about business in framing the rule of law in a post-conflict country so I would say two things about that. One is that um, when corporations are behave ethically and respect and human rights uh, directly or indirectly, they really contribute to the common good of a society. They create jobs and wealth. They promote uh, development of technology through innovation and research. Um, they even make basic elements for human life, such as food, clothing. So they really make a contribution for a society, uh, especially a society that is in a process of reconstruction. So we need businesses for all that, for job creation, for uh, food, for produ production of, of, and of pr products and providing services. Uh, but at the same time, the idea that businesses um, are 
at the center of an idea that the poor are not the ones uh, they have they're they should not be receiving the help uh, only but they should be entrusted with their responsibility for their own destiny so through the creation of businesses and through their uh, work they, sh they can get out from poverty and then in that way uh, peace you know peace in some way in what we're talking this relationship great and is there something I know this wasn't in your paper but is there something inherently problematic about post-conflict countries that have large natural resources uh, that sort of rely on extraction industries I think that's a great question. I mean, that's, I mean, I don't think there's in an inherent uh, problem of extractive industry necessarily, but it's usually the most common sector that uh, the sector that most commonly violates human rights and affect environment. Why is that? Because they, they are, um, their activity has this wider impact on humans' um, life. You know, they, they have the capacity to uh, destroy. Uh, the land and can pollute water, which is usually the main source of um, food for many co communities. They can um, so they they hurt the community if they do if they incorrectly work. You know, part of what I'm arguing in, in my dissertation in my dissertation and my and that paper is that um, businesses that work um, through a human rights process they incorporate human rights principles into their practice they can really contribute their common to the common good but if they don't if they just care about profit especially extractive sector um, corporations they're just going to harm the environment and the people that surround them but you believe that irregardless of the industry um, a business can can work in a virtuous circle absolutely man you're handling all the un unscripted questions um, you cite the there's a governance gap inherent in globalization. Uh, what are some things that governments fresh out of conflict can do to incentivize businesses and, and business activities that enhance the virtuous circle of peace, human rights, and development? So um, states can um, help just with basic uh, incentives, economic incentives like taxations. Um, they can also promote norms that um, enhance um, or help corporations integrating human rights principles into their activities like national action plans um, they they can sanction and punish those corporations that do not work uh, in a in the proper way in, within their their uh, territory or jurisdiction so they can incentivize or they can punish um, through like legal means um, corporations that are not acting in a correct way yes uh, so I know we covered this a little bit earlier what legal frameworks can Colombia look to in developing a post-conflict system of justice? It recently, um, there is a very interesting soft law initiative um, created uh, in the United Nations, which is called the United Guiding Principles, uh, which are kind of a framework to build uh, legislation for uh, to regulate business uh, doing activities within your territory as a state so that these guiding principles of the United Nations would be a great framework to start and um, at the same time in Colombia and in Latin America the jurisprudence or case law of the Inter-American Human Rights um, Court helps in some ways to understand what are the specific obligations of corporations doing businesses in in uh, Latin America so that's 
that would be the f like sources of the of law however they are limited they are just as I said soft law they're not binding they're very general in in their nature uh, the case law of the inter-american um, court is mainly about the duty of the state not about the non-state actors responsibility only secondarily talks about that so they're very limited in and you have to build only on those very general principles um so your final section you talk about just post bellum uh, what does that mean so just post bellum is um inter contemporary international law of war is divided usually in use ad velum and use at use ad velum and use in velum so use ad velum are the norms norms that regulate the reasons or causes to go to war and use in velum are the international humanitarian law laws that regulate how you wage war you know and the and the prohibitions how you act there are some limits to war right the the jus post bellum should be the set of principles and norms that regulate um, situations after the conflict, after the war. But there is very few literature or laws that really say something about that. We have to create everything kind of from scratch. And it has been kind of forgotten by the international community. Okay, that sounds like a really bad thing to leave out. Um, you state that the key to juice postbellum are realism, justice, and solidarity. Can you explain these and, and how do they intertwine? So I am proposing a jus post velum uh, framework for Colombia based on these three principles, realism, realism justice, and, and solidarity. And uh, what I'm saying is realism it means that um, it requires actions that are prudent and they are reasonable, that they are not, they discard illusory uh, proposals such as for example the direct uh, wealth distribution from corporations to victims of the conflict that's is this unreal no corporation is going to accept that and not even a just a judge is going to decide that because it's unjust in some ways um, so really is, is a way to approach the problem uh, accepting the, the weakness and the strengths of the actors and uh, not with these uh, utopian ideas Justice um, is um, is a twofold idea. One is that it has to punish past crimes in a retributive way, but it also has to restore relationships that were harmed or destroyed within the community because of the war. So justice is the principle in this way that uh, should inspire and guide that just 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 post velum uh, creation. And solidarity is the principle that um, should direct all actors in Colombia and, and everywhere uh, and it means that everyone has a in responsibility for each other person for other for the other actors in the community um, so it departs from the recognition that we are all interdependent that we need each other that what we do or we don't do is going to harm or going to benefit the others and in this way especially for business doing um working in colombia in the reconstruction of the country they should be aware that what they do or they don't do is is going to harm the country or is going to help to, re to reconstruct the country so this relationship between uh realist 
perspective uh, based on justice because of past crimes and uh, and restoring restoring uh, relationships and promoting proactive action of businesses towards or in the benefit of the others that should create a, a very solid um, legal framework for for the post-conflict Colombia. Okay, and is this what you continue to focus on in your dissertation? Um, it's related, um, especially in the solidarity principle. There is very few um, literature about that, um, and, and I want to explore what the principle of solidarity means, really, and why it's not just I mean, it's a charity problem that you have to go and uh, be a good citizens and, and give some money of your pocket but you have an obligation to help the others because um, of your position your power uh, because you have the resources or because you have um, um, an obligation just because of belonging to a community okay so we're six months out now about um, what's the state of affairs on the ground how's it look in a legal framework so we are currently in the process of implementation of the accords um, and between the FARC and the government. And this implementation has been very difficult, um, but is going well, I think so. Uh, we are in the process of disarmament. The former combatants are giving their weapons and they're concentrating in some areas of Colombia. And uh, they have a couple months to be there. And af after that, they're going to be um, going to the peace tribunal and the peace tribunal is going to decide what is their legal situation uh, if they have to pay some kind of sanction what kind of work they have to do and if they can um, proceed with their civil life or they are um, or they have to do something else okay great I'm gonna give you the airwaves uh, what do we need to know what's going on um, well you should know that Colombia is a safe place to go that if you want to visit and I uh, should you should really go do that and and we are in a very exciting time for, for us as Colombians. This is the most important uh, historical event of my generation. So what it, we're talking about here is is, is very important. And um, I hope to see a, a better Colombia in the f next futures. And I'm going back to Colombia just to do that, to help Colombia.